Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Aerobility Inspirability. It's uh, it's about two weeks now since the the amazing armchair air show and the dust is settling, and uh, we've had a couple of weeks to wind down from our last huge online event. Thanks for those that came along; it really was great fun, and I hope you all enjoyed it. But it gives me a real pleasure to uh, very shortly hand you over to Harvey Matthewson at Aerobility Flyer and today's host for our special guest today. But just before I hand over to Harvey, I just wanted to say um, it's a real pleasure to introduce our our guest today. He's been a fabulous volunteer for the charity. He's been a great friend and he's been a fabulous instructor and encouraged so many people to fly in it. But a really experienced aviator with a great story to tell. So got some great stories, I know. So really looking forward to today just to sit back and uh, hear about a life of flying and uh, lots more flying to come in the future as well. But also, it, uh, it really would be great if you would consider visiting our Virtual Ability Just Giving page just to help us and support us during these crazy times. So if you do, uh, follow the link underneath and we'll put it on screen during the talk where you can make a donation of just a few pounds to support this program. That would be much appreciated. So I'm now going to uh, bring Harvey onto the screen. Harvey is uh, one of our flyers, as many of you know. Harvey, good afternoon. How are you doing? Afternoon, I'm good. Cheers, Mike. How are you? Very good, thank you. I'm really pleased that we've got uh, Inspirability back again. Yeah, and such a great guest. I mean, you were talking about people, Nick inspiring people to fly. And he, he, after so many years in the industry, he still pulled um passion for aviation which i think makes him so special absolutely well should we bring him onto the screen we might as well i think <laughs> oh good afternoon everybody i don't know how i'm going to follow that now <laughs> afternoon we were just talking about you actually i just noticed that yeah but harvey i'll leave you to introduce nick have fun Cheers, Mike. Cool. Hey, Nick, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Harvey. I'm very happy to be here. So, uh, yeah, I hope I can live up to your introduction. Well, we are very happy to have you. So, Nick, you're an executive jet captain, or at least were. Um, your progress into aviation was just quite quite different um and i think that makes it extraordinary and you're also a very valued ability uh volunteer um so it's great to have you on the show and uh like many of us uh you catch the aviation bug quite young how did you become first fascinated with aviation well, right from the very beginning, I was born into a, an airline family. Uh, my father was an apprentice engineer with Imperial Airways before the Second World War. And uh, when he came back from the war, he became a chief steward flying with BOAC. So from very earliest times, I've grown up uh, around the airport and with uh, airplanes around. It was interesting, though, that I, um, I had two brothers um, and being a... a, a well, I'd call a BOAC family, I suppose. We all went in as we grew up and we left school. We all joined BOAC, including my mother. Um, and we were all as a family really interested in traveling. 
that I was the only one that was really interested in the flying side of things. It was the aeroplanes that fascinated me, although I did enjoy the traveling as well. Um, so that was my origin for it. That, that's really great. And I think it's amazing that everyone in the industry sort of gets into it from a young age. Um, but I've said your, your journey to the cockpit was a bit delayed. Um, it wasn't the normal training and straight into the pilot seat. Um, you actually started off in BOAT uh, telephone sales um, before in 1972 moving to flight operations and ground handling uh, for British Airways. What, what steered you towards taking that route? Well, when I was at school, I, I always wanted to fly. Um, and at the time, there weren't that many sponsored flying uh, training facilities around. There was the Air Training uh, College at Hamble, that, which fed pilots into British Airways, or BIC and BEA. And there was the Air Force, of course. But there was so much competition. Um, I've got to admit, I was probably slightly lazy academically as well. So um, I was slightly intimidated when I went for the interviews for these places by all these guys that seemed to be so confident and know where they were going and know what they were doing. Um, but um, And I thought, I can't compete here. I, I was probably underconfident at the time. But um, I thought, well, I've got to get into the into the airport. I've got to get into the industry. So I just went into BIC and that's where I started on the telephone sales department. And then I just progressed through various departments. And I ended up down at Heathrow uh, working in the flight operations department, which then brought me into line with the whole operation with pilots, with uh, flight planning and all sorts of aspects like that. And then by almost like my life seems to have run by pure lucky chances. Um, I fell into a job almost by accident, which was ground handling for private and VIP flights. Um, and um, I, I got through the interview process for that. And that was the first time it brought me into direct con uh, contact with aeroplanes and pilots and passengers. And we, we actually provided a whole um, package of ground handling. And it was such a good grounding for me for an aviation career. Um, so that as I progressed through that, I was there in that department for about 19 years altogether. And we were part of British Airways, so I had the benefit of uh, being employed by British Airways and a really strong you know, airline behind me. But we were a small department and they, we were pretty much left alone to get on with things. Um, as long as we didn't upset the apple cart with the main airline, we just got on with it and we were um, uh, just left free to do it. Uh, but, it but that really got the bug to me. That it, and that was the first time that I thought that I would then have the possibility to fly. And initially I thought, no, well, I'll get myself a private pilot's license. So at least I'll be able to experience flying. And that's where it, uh, that's where it all started. And by then I was in my thirties and, mm. uh, you know, and that was my only plan at that time was to just get myself a PPL and then see how we go from there. Yeah. Uh, and it all worked out in the end. Um, but working at British Airways Executive, it must have put you in that line of fire of 
very many interesting and maybe even famous people. Did you have a favourite personality that you saw regularly and enjoyed seeing? Oh, well, yeah, I could dish the dirt and tell you some really stories of the awful ones. But no, I, mean, I like to think positively. And yeah, actually, I, so I think probably the, the, uh, my favourite celebrity I ever met was uh, Danny DeVito. And yeah. uh, I had to meet him from a, uh, from a flight. Uh, and he just coming from Tokyo. He'd flown into Heathrow from Tokyo. And he was being taken by helicopter to go and meet Prince Charles, I think. And, um, and I thought, well, he's probably going to be grumpy. And uh, he came off this flight. And it was a typical, you know, it was the furthest gate. So we had to walk all the way through um, the terminal to get to immigration and customs. And, of course, he was instantly recognisable. And so people were almost mobbing him all the way. And I was, you know, doing my best to keep it all moving. But he stopped and spoke to everybody that spoke to him. He stopped to have photographs taken with people. And he did it all so cheerfully. And uh, to the extent when we came out of customs, there was a little boy uh, waiting to, I think, probably meet his mum. He was with his dad. And he said to his dad, oh, dad, there's Danny DeVito. And... Um, and his dad said, oh, look, he's a big Hollywood star. Don't bother him, son, you know. And as we came around the corner where all the crowds were waiting, I looked around, he'd gone. I thought, where's he gone? And he clocked this little boy. He dived into the crowd. And when I found him, he was kneeling down, chatting to this little boy. And uh, <laughs> when I got him away, I said, come on, we've got a flight to catch here, you know. And we were walking back towards the car. And I said, I don't know how you do it. You know, you're just so nice to everybody. And he said, even after all this time, he said, I'm just a, a little kid from from Brooklyn. He said, you know, I've got no real skills. He said, and I still really appreciate that people want to talk to me. And I just thought he had such a lovely attitude to life, you know. So, that, uh, Oh, that, that's a brilliant story. I, um, I, I know even though Danny DeVito might be the nicest, he yeah. was the most eventful customer you ever had. I uh, heard that there's a story about a US president and an aircraft <laughs> tire which kept you busy for a couple of hours whilst working. Oh, <laughs> yes, we had, um, it was actually, it was at the time, it was, it was President Jimmy Carter. And it was at the time he just ceased to be the president. And he was uh, taking up. Uh, quite a lot of roles in in fighting disease in uh, uh, sort of parts of Africa, and uh, he was ambassador to the UN and that sort of thing. And he was doing a, a tour down in Ethiopia and Sudan, I think. Um, but he was using a, a private executive Boeing seven two seven, which was being provided uh, to him by a Middle Eastern bank. And so I was dispatching the flight and. Um, Chatting with the captain, we, uh, it turned out that uh, one of the wheels had been damaged, one of the tyres had been damaged on landing. And, uh, and the captain looked at it and said, we can't fly with that, especially going down to, you know, to Ethiopia. So, uh, so we hit the phones, got back to the office, and we were calling everybody that might have a Boeing 727 wheel and tyre assembly. And it was at the time when the 727 was, was, wasn't being used that much as, a, as an airliner. It was when the Airbuses and the 737s were coming in. So uh, we couldn't find a tyre until we eventually, one of my colleagues, Jeff Perry, he managed to get hold of the engineering supervisor at uh, a very well-known French airline. And this chap said, oh, yes, we've got a, a wheel and tyre assembly in the store. Uh, Jeff said, oh, great. Can we have it? And he said, no. 
So he said, but you're not even operating 727s into Heathrow. He said, we can replace it by tomorrow, um, but uh, this aircraft's grounded and it'll be a 24 hour delay. And this chap was just adamant. I mean, I don't know whether he just had a, uh, you know, just didn't really like private jets or something. But uh, anyway, he was adamant that we couldn't have this wheel and tire assembly. So we were arranging to get one shipped in from the US, which would have then taken probably 24 hours to, to do. Uh, meanwhile, of course, it, departure time was getting closer and the passengers were turning up and he turned up in a great stretched Lincoln uh, limousine with flags on the front and police outriders. I mean, uh, you know, he was uh, very big news at the time and uh, he turned up at the VIP suite. So I was being the dispatcher of the flight. I was sent around to let the VIP people know. So I explained the situation to them and... Um, and of course, one thing about people that deal with VIPs, they don't like giving bad news. So the VIP man said to me, well, you know what's happening. You better go in and tell him. So I was wheeled into the great man. He was sitting there with his wife drinking his coffee. And, um, and I, I always believe if there's bad news, you know, don't pussyfoot around, just give it to him straight. Mm -hmm. So I just told him in words of one syllable, pretty much, uh, the situation and that it was going to be a 24-hour delay and he just sat looking at me didn't really sort of say much while I was talking and I ran out of things to say so he then just looked at me and very quietly he just said where's the man with the wheel so I said oh he's in an office uh, not very far away he said will you take me to him I said yes certainly you know so up he got and the two of us we walked out and he got into this limousine and um, so I got into my British Airways car and just started to drive around the airside roads towards this uh, airline engineering office. And it was shared, the office was shared by um, the ramp handlers, so the baggage loaders, uh, the pushback drivers uh, and the engineers. Uh, so we pulled up in this limousine outside the office. But to get to speak to the supervisor, uh, we had to actually go into the, uh, the ramp workers restroom. And, uh, you know, you can imagine what a ramp workers restroom is, you know, I mean, it's just, pretty mucky and uh, yeah. you know, cups on the table, you know, men sitting there reading the Sun newspaper fang in his mouth, you know. And we walked in and it was just like John Wayne walking into the saloon. The whole place just went so quiet. And the, and the supervisor sat in a little office at the far end. Uh, it's a separate office, but he used to speak to the, the workers through like a post office sort of grill. But we had to walk, just Jimmy and me, you know, just the two of us walked the length of this, room in silence and the chap could see us coming and his eyes were like saucers and when we got to him uh, he just jimmy just bent down and he spoke into the window and he said uh, are you the man with the wheel and this chap just went he said yeah i have it he said thank you very much and we just <laughs> around the two of us walked out again and you know sure enough wheel turned up and uh, the job was done and they were away within an hour and a half but it was probably the most, I would say that's the single most surreal experience I had, you know, with uh, with a, a well-known personality. Yeah. It's great. I really, you know, thinking back on it now, I really enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's a fantastic story. I mean, the sort of people we dealt with, I mean, I was thinking about it after you were talking yesterday, and people like Henry Kissinger, you know, we used, was a yeah. regular with us. And again, you know, he was flying to the Middle East and dealing with um, 
the Palestinian crisis and all sorts of things like that. But in the time that he was crossing through Heathrow to transfer to go on the Concorde, um, you know, I, we were having just I one to one time with the chap for, you know, 20 minutes at a time. And it's uh, it, it was a real privilege, really. I mean, people yeah. like Eddie Kissinger, Robert Maxwell, Rupert Murdoch, Yaga Khan. And it was just uh, people like that, you know, became just regular customers. We were known as, you know, the, the chaps at Heathrow, you know. And it really got me over this idea of being starstruck. So if I ever got to meet, you know, celebrities, you know, they you realize that they're just people like anybody else, really. And, and this is a skill which would come in handy late, later on in your career. And I'm sure we can talk about Heathrow all day, but I think people are here to really hear about you going after your dream. And yeah. as a little interlude to our viewers at home, if you do have any questions throughout this talk, uh, chat, chat them up, put them in the comments, and we'll try to get round to them um, at the end. But it's nice to see some comments coming in already. All um, right. It is your famous name. Things weren't destined to be at Heathrow forever. You did actually achieve what you set out to do. And that story from, uh, started in 1985. Um, tell us a bit about your training all the way through getting your CPL. Yeah, well, as I, um, as I said, you know, my plan was to get a PPL. Uh, and, of course, we got uh, reduced rates at the British Airways Flying Club up at Booker. Um, so I joined the BA Flying Club and started flying training. Um, but bear in mind, by that time, I was in my 30s, had a mortgage, had, you know, wife and two kids. Um, so uh, money was fairly tight. So I could only afford to do one lesson a month. And uh, so that's how I started out. And, uh, and of course, progress because of that was very slow. Uh, so that's why it took me more than it took me over two years to get to the stage of being ready for my uh, general flying test for the private pilot's license. Um, but and of course, as it got nearer to getting the license, then I did, you know, sort of get together some more money and and uh, intensify the training. But I was very fortunate. I mean, again, I'm say that my whole life has been a, a series of happy accidents. But um, when it got to my test, uh, I was uh, tested by a chap called Tim Orchard, who was the chief flying instructor and examiner at the BA Flying Club at the time. And he and I knew each other uh, anyway from uh, uh, working in the exec department. And uh, he did my flying test for me. And we just got on very well together. And he was very encouraging. And he planted the idea. He said, well, you've gone this far. He said, you've got the attitude. He said, you could go the whole way. He said, if you really applied yourself, you could get um, an ATPL. Um, but he said, you know, I won't lie to you. He said, it's a lot of work and, uh, and it's not going to be easy. But with that encouragement, um, I, I thought about it, discussed it with my wife and family. And uh, with their support, I got stuck in. Um, but having got the PPL in those days, in order to get to the next stage to get a commercial pilot's license, um, you had to have 700 hours logged in your logbook uh, before you could even start taking any exams. So... And that was a pretty daunting prospect to, to build 700 flying hours um, and then move on to the next stage. 
but I had various wheezes in, in order to, to do that. Um, two things of significance happened at the time. One, that apart from being the chief flying instructor at the BA Flying Club, um, Tim was flying a Beach 300 King Air. Um, I think Chad might have a picture of it at some stage that he might be able to pop up. And uh, that was based at Booker. Um, and it was mainly used to fly Lord King and the British Airways Board of Directors around. There it is. And that's parked at Heathrow outside the um, uh, TBA maintenance area. It's a brilliant looking machine. Oh, it's fantastic, yeah. Uh, but uh, a little while after I'd got my PPL, I had a phone call from Tim and Lord King said he wanted to have two pilots, even though legally it was a single pilot operation. Lord King said, no, he'd rather have two pilots. Um, so I didn't have to be a full commercial pilot to go and fly it privately. Um, so Tim invited me to go and fly uh, as, as the co-pilot on that airplane. And it was quite a daunting prospect. I mean, I, at that stage, I had a total time of, I think, 145 hours. And uh, so uh, I started flying uh, right-hand seat on, on this airplane. And at the beginning, I mean, my main function was actually to put the wheels up and down and, uh, and to make, make sure Lord King had his whiskey and his cheese board. Uh, but Tim was fantastic. I mean, he was so encouraging. And if we were doing any uh, low-level VFR flying, um, he actually talked me through my and, and taught me through my multi-engine rating, so that I could actually log uh, VFR time when we were flying on the on the King Air. So um, you know, I got a lot of very good experience doing that. Uh, it, it was just incredible. I mean, I can't I can't thank Tim enough for for the help and encouragement he gave me. Um, the other significant thing happened. Uh, I decided it was a lot cheaper and easier to go and fly in the USA uh, to rent a, like a Cessna 152, a small single-engined airplane, and to build the flying hours up. It was incredibly cheap in America to do that, and a lot more freedom as well, freedom of the airspace. Um, and so I, through a, a friend I had in Houston, a girl called Hayden Swift Tyree, um, she set up... Um, to, for me to get my American private license. She put me up in her house. She set up a, a, a deal with a local flying club for me to rent their airplanes. And off I went, I went and stayed with her. And I spent some great times flying around the Houston area uh, yeah. and really enjoyed it. Because um, all I had to do was fly. I needed to get these 700 hours. That's it. Well, this is the next stage actually, that, that picture there. Um, I was reading Pilot Magazine one day and in the small ads in the back, personal ads, there was a, an ad and it said, come to Chicago, uh, fly a Cessna 152, 15 pounds an hour wet. And it was, it was quoted in pounds, not dollars. Um, and it was, yeah, and so that meant 15 pounds an hour, including the fuel, free accommodation and free pickup from O'Hare Airport. And reading it, I thought, it's got to be a scam. Yeah, you know, this, it's too when you you know when you say oh if it looks too good it it is uh, so I thought well I can get a free ticket to get over there on a standby ticket um, if they say it's all free so I'm going to go and try it for a few days and then just see how I get on with it and then I'll find out what the scam is and at least then I'll know. Sure enough, off I went and when I got there it was a place called Cushing Field in the in the cornfields of Illinois and um, it was owned by a chap called uh, Bud Cushing who was a retired TWA pilot. And he was an absolute aviation nut. He just wanted to spread the joy of aviation around the world. So he put these small ads in magazines all around the world. And so when I got there, sure enough, I was picked up, 
taken to the airfield. It was about an hour's drive from O'Hare. Um, and there was a big old fashioned, you know, the old fashioned farmhouses in the States, wooden built with a, a veranda. It was yeah. one of those. And they just said, okay, well, you go in there, find yourself an empty bedroom, and that'll be your room while you're here. Very, oh. very rough and ready. You know, I mean, hygiene was a bit questionable, you know, but they, you know, you had a bathroom, you had a bed to sleep on. Um, and it was amazing. I mean, I'd wake up at seven o'clock in the morning, fall out of bed get into the airplane and there was an airfield about 10 minutes flying time away we'd fly over there and they did a three dollar full american breakfast uh and then get your maps out plan what you're going to do for the day and at, so at the end of that first week got the bill sure enough that was what it was 15 pounds an hour uh, you know cheapest chips and i said to bud you know you're going to have a lot of people in england are going to be suspicious about this um so uh, i've been here now i've seen what the deal is so if anybody from England is inquiring, then I'm happy if you give them my phone number and then I'll just tell them, you know, honestly what I think of the place. And that was it. Well, when I got home, my phone rang off the hook. I mean, I could have up to a dozen calls a day from people inquiring about this. And I was very honest about the deal. The aircraft were pretty, they weren't new, they were quite old airplanes, but they were properly and well-maintained. Uh, the place was a bit grubby, but it was it was great it was very very free and easy and um and so i suppose because of these calls and i was talking to people all the time about what the deal was um a lot of people based on what i said then went to cushing and did their own hour building and so a few times i got very friendly with bud because i was going over there for my days off as often as, as i could get over there um and sometimes at the end of my flying week uh, i'd go to pay the bill and he'd say oh no it's okay this week's on the house and uh, and it, like eventually i had to i, I needed to uh, uh revalidate my multi-engine rating at some stage and bud had an old a very old beaten up piper apache and uh, so i just mentioned it in conversation to him one day that i've got to renew my uh, multi-engine right he said come on and he took me out to this old apache and we did oh probably a good two hours flying in it and uh, single engine work and all sorts and again at the end of that uh, you know, he uh, he said, uh, that's all on the house. So, um, again, a lucky break for me, but it made it made it affordable and it made it fun. You know, I used to I used to sort of set myself tasks. How many different states can I land in in one day? And from Illinois, you can actually get to quite a few different states, you know, within one day. I think the best I did was six. Um, but the other thing is, you know, it can be a daunting task just to fly around. People, people would get airborne and fly around and around in circles and be really bored and not really enjoy it. I, every stage of my training and studying, I enjoyed it. You know, I'm a real sort of believer in this expression, you know, the journey is the destination. And I had a goal that I was working towards, but I definitely enjoyed the, the journey and the, and, the, uh, and the things I was doing along the way. I think you got to, especially with a journey such as one into aviation, it can be difficult, but oh. you got to enjoy the journey. But, yes. I mean, that opportunity to me just sounds like heaven. I yeah. think it might be a brewery away from being heaven for me. Um, but yeah, absolutely brilliant. Uh, and you didn't get that. In 1992, you did your CPL training. Um, 
in Bournemouthan. That all went well. At that point, when you when you had your CV, did you know that you were on to a, a good career? Well, not not necessarily, but um, one of the things is that uh, I mean, I it, it took me probably about twelve years from you know from a standing start to get my frozen ATPL, um, and. I'd probably spent somewhere between eighty thousand and ninety thousand pounds to do that, spread over that twelve years. So it was, you know, bearable. Um, but I know several people that were doing similar things to me at that time, who who spent that time and spent that money and never got a job at the end of it. Um, mm. But um, again, which is why I was saying earlier, you know, it, I do seem to have had some lucky breaks. And uh, I got really friendly while I was working in the executive aircraft unit at Heathrow. Um, I got friendly with a chap called Nick Probert, uh, who started his own company with a Piper Navajo Chieftain, a uh, little twin engine propeller aircraft, uh, which he based at Heathrow. He just landed at Heathrow and just didn't leave. He just kept it there. And I used to go and do a bit of pilot assistant work with him. I helped him run the operation when his wife went off to have a baby. And, um, you know, he uh, he was a very, very go-getting sort of guy and uh, so we just hit it off um, but he left Heathrow and when Farnborough became uh, more of an important sort of business aviation hub uh, he built the fleet up and ended up with a fleet of seven jet airplanes and this was parallel with me doing my training to get my um, ATPL my frozen ATPL and so when I finally it, it all sort of came together that um, I got my IR test passed, so I had a frozen ATPL instrument rating. British Airways were looking for staff to leave, so they were offering very generous severance packages. And Nick Probert and his company, Chauffeur, based at Farnborough, um, well, they, they didn't actually have a space for me, but put it this way, Nick, Nick Probert created a space for me. And so I took my severance, took a good paycheck from British Airways. I had the weekend off. And the Monday morning, I started working for Chauffeur, uh, flying Citations and HS125s. So, uh, you know, it, it was almost as though it, uh, it was a master plan that had come together, but it actually, it all just fell into place uh, pretty much at the right time. Oh, it's brilliant. You've definitely got someone looking over you. Well, I'm a great believer in being nice to people, and I'm a great yeah. believer in being proactive. And and I think those those things do they do help. I think when you're looking for a job, um, I think if you've got a license, uh, it's kind of in the industry. It's a given that if you've managed to reach the standard to get a license, then your flying is not then sort of put into question. So the big thing when somebody's going to employ you is. Am I going to want to spend three weeks down route staying in hotels with this guy? Are we going to get on together? And uh, being amenable and being proactive, I think, is is a big factor, uh, particularly in uh, in business aviation, probably even more so than the airlines, uh, where, you know, on the airlines, you don't necessarily know the person you're flying with, but you've got, you know, standard operating procedures, which everybody uh, uh, abides by, which is the same in business aviation, except that you tend to fly with the same people, you know, for a long period. So you've, you've got to get on pretty well together to make that work. 
Yeah, and talk, talk me through your first job at Shaper Enic and what was the citation like as, as an aircraft? Well, to me, it was a real hot ship, of course. I mean, uh, apart from, uh, you know, it was the first pure jet that I'd flown. Of course, the, uh, the King Air, the Beechcraft, had uh, jet engines, but the jet engines drove propellers. But the citation, God, it was, it was brilliant. I mean, I loved it. And in fact, it was quite funny that uh, the deal was uh, because Nick Probert actually didn't need any new pilots, uh, he agreed for me to go and fly the citation. But my main job, as far as he was concerned, would would be that I would be running uh, or be involved in the operations office. Yeah. And his idea was that I'd be an ops guy, and my idea was that I'd be a pilot. So there was a bit of a clash which came at one point. Uh, but my very first trip, that's it. And that's the first aircraft I flew at Farnborough. Um, oh, but it, it was quite funny, actually, that I turned up at work in the ops office one morning at nine o'clock and um, the phone rang and it was the accident investigation branch. And they were based at Farmer, of course. And um, they said, uh, look, we've got um, uh, an aircraft has just landed at Manchester and it's uh, it's shed one of its undercarriage. And so it's blocking the runway. But we want to get an accident team up there uh, and we want to keep the aircraft on the runway. Uh, so that we can have a look at it. So how quickly could you get an airplane airborne? So I thought, well, I was one of the pilots, so I could be there. I could get the, I could do the flight plan. I could get the aircraft ready. I said, I reckon we could be ready for departure in 45 minutes. So they said, great. So I phoned one of the pilots, one of the captains, and he was, I said, what are you doing, Tony? He said, I'm just vacuuming the stairs. I said, well, just, just don't put your uniform on anything. Just get in the car and drive to Farnborough. And bring your bring your flying bag, and sure enough, I mean, forty five minutes later, this accident team got on the airplane and we flew up to Manchester, and uh, and then we had to wait uh, while they got the um, uh, the flight data recorder uh, and the cockpit voice recorder. So we, we were stuck up there for about four hours uh, until they uh, and we flew them back to Farnborough to do the investigation. Um, so the office weren't very pleased with me because I'd left the ops office unmanned, but uh, that was my very first trip. In show fair. Oh, boo. It so, was a little bit of a baptism and fire there. Where did you land at Manchester? Did you land beyond the aircraft? Or no, we actually, we actually flew to Woodford, which is the British Aerospace okay. Airport. Yeah, and then they got a car across. Um, so, you know, that worked out okay. But then, you know, started flying the Citation initially, and after about a year, I then um, converted onto the HS125 as well, which was a fantastic airplane to fly. Yeah. Uh, we had three HS125s, and, yeah, I mean, joyful. Did some brilliant trips. But we flew the we flew celebrities on there. Uh, but we did, I mean, I remember one of the most memorable trips I did was a nine-day trip to Egypt where we flew to Cairo. had about three days in Cairo. That's it. Yep, that was on the one two five. We flew down to Luxor. Had a few days in Luxor. Then we flew down to Aswan, and then and the positioning flights because the passengers we had they were doing a Nile cruise. So a lot of the flying in within Egypt we were empty, didn't have any passengers on. So we were just buzzing low level, flying along the river along the Nile. And I did think, you know, well, you don't get to do this as an airline pilot, you know. No, that, that's the thing. And you look an extremely swish in that beta, like the control. Uh, yeah, it's lucky it's a bit fuzzy around the edges, isn't it? It was uh, not really well focused, but... <laughs> um, and 
Schaefer obviously uh, came to an end in uh, 2002. Uh, yes. which, unfortunately, they went bust and you were left without a job. Um, was it difficult for you to get back into the cockpit after that? Well, yes. I mean, it was a real shock, actually, that um, we were... Uh, every, everybody in the company, all the pilots and the cabin crew and the office ops guys, we were all brought into a big office and we thought that we were going to be talked about, uh, talked to about what cutbacks there'd be so that we could tighten the belt. And in fact, the Price Waterhouse Cooper man, as he shut the door, just said, right, as of this moment, you are all out of a job. And I thought, well, and there was no payoff. I mean, there was no redundancy pay uh, and, you know, still had the mortgage to pay at the end of the month. So it was a real shock, uh, but um, you know it's no good, uh, you know, sort of crying into your beer, really, is it? So um, again, two things happened in fairly quick succession. Uh, for the previous couple of years, um, on my days off from chauffeur, I did a bit of freelance work for a company called Range Mile, who operated um, an HS125 between Coventry and Genoa on a regular contract. It was like a shuttle service they did and they used various freelance pilots and once in a while they'd be really stuck and really stranded so you know i'd be one of the people they'd ring up and if i could help them out then you know you know extra bit of flying for me i mean what's not to like so if i could help them out i would do it and uh, so i got them out of a hole you know sort of several times um so the day after i was redundant i rang them up and said look any freelance work you could let me have i'd really appreciate it and the guy in ops there said, God, you got us out of the trouble, you know, so many times in the past. He said, we're going to try and fit you into the program. So I actually had about a month of freelance flying, uh, which absolutely saved my life. You know, it kept me airborne. It kept me current. And um, uh, but at, toward, coming towards the end of that month, uh, one of the old chauffeur ops guys as well had got a new job with a company at Farnborough uh, called Jet Club. And they came up with a requirement for a, um, a pilot on a short-term contract to fly a Citation Bravo, which is basically an upgraded glass cockpit version of the Citation II. Um, but it was to be based in Cannes in the south of France. So this guy rang me up from the office and said, do you fancy a short-term contract living in the south of France for a few months? And I said, well, who wouldn't? So um, off I went and lived in the south of France and they provided uh, an apartment. And the lovely thing about it was that all I was required to do was fly when they wanted me to. Um, but the rest of the time was my own. So I had to be on call and I had to stay within two hours drive of Cannes Airport. But apart from that, I was, uh, I was as free as a bird. It was brilliant. And the, uh, there was one drawback to it. The, um, the chap that I was flying with, there were only two of us to fly this aeroplane. And the other chap was, uh, he was an ex um, French Navy Mirage pilot. And um, he was he was a bit, uh, I'll be nice about this. He was quite excitable, put it that way. And he, he obviously didn't trust this Englishman who'd suddenly appeared in, in his midst. And he was quite, uh, what shall I say, critical from the very first time we went flying. Uh, and he would get really excited and really, um you sort of shout at me even sometimes and after the first week we'd done about three trips together and it was getting a bit wearing and i was thinking i don't know if i can stand this you know i might have to just resign and and uh, and go home 
but two things happened which saved the day. And one of them was that uh, we were on a, on a trip back into Cannes to land, and he was flying. Uh, and you, uh, because Cannes, it's it's right on the coast, and it's um, it's in a valley, uh, or it's in a sort of like a, a bowl with the mountains around, or the high hills around. And you have to fly a very precise approach because it's a mix of light aircraft, jet airplanes, and helicopters. Um, and so you have to fly a, a very very accurate circuit. Uh, with direction and height. Uh, and we'd come in to start the initial approach, and I'd done the approach checks. So uh, you know when, you'll know this, Harvey, that when, you, when you're when you flying high, you're on a standard pressure setting, so that yeah. the main concern is that the aircraft stay apart from each other. As you get lower down to fly the approach, your main concern then is, is uh, terrain clearance. So you change the pressure setting to the local pressure so that you know how high you are above the sea and above the airfield. Um, so we'd done the approach checks, and part of the approach check is to set this pressure setting. And then we started downwind, and I looked at my altitude meter, and I noticed that we were about 150 feet too low. And I thought, that's a bit unusual. So I looked at uh, my good friend, Thierry, and I noticed that he'd somehow managed to press the button and reset standard pressure on his altimeter. So he was flying the wrong altitude. So I thought, well, I don't want to get him too excited. How can I, um, uh, you know, sort of put this across? So I very quietly and calmly said, oh, uh, uh, you seem to have uh, reverted to uh, standard pressure theory. And he looked at it and realized his mistake, quickly set the right pressure and then regained uh, his altitude. But his attitude towards me, that I'd really helped him and that I'd really saved his bacon. And he was a lot more, he was a lot nicer to me after that. And the other thing that happened a few days later, uh, we were called out to do a charter to fly this passenger from Cannes up to Paris to catch a scheduled flight. Um, now, the problem with this was that it was a Swiss registered airplane. And having worked in ops and flight planning myself, um, I was aware of what they call the cabotage rules, which is that you cannot fly a foreign registered aircraft in your country just on a domestic flight within your country. So it was actually against the law to fly a Swiss aircraft just on a flight within France. So I pointed this out to Thierry and uh, he rang the main ops office up in, in Farnborough and said, we can't do this charter because it's against cabotage. And they said, oh, just do it. Just, you know, don't worry. Who's going to know? And we said, well, look, actually, it's our responsibility here. If, if we get ramp checked in Paris, you know, we're the ones in trouble. Uh, so Thierry said, no, I'm just refused. He flat refused to uh, to fly the trip. And I said to him, you know, well, look, we come as a team. So, you know, uh, it's not just you that's in trouble with the company. We are in trouble with the company. Um, so, you know, we, we, we're in this together. And that really sort of uh, cemented our relationship. And from that day on, we were the best of friends. And we flew together. It was great. And in the end, they offered me a full-time job but uh, I didn't accept it, but um, that was another story. But it, it, it was great. It was that, that few months I spent living down in Cannes, brilliant. You know. It sounds absolutely fantastic. And good to see you did some uh, diplomatic work out there for the Anglo-French relationship. <laughs> Oh yeah, it, it was a it was a real coup in the end. I mean, it was it was a real pleasure, and we were quite you know, I was sad to say goodbye to him at the end of it, you know. So, uh, and I've never seen him since, strangely enough. Yeah. But moving on from that, of course, we got back from that contract, and um, 
I was back in the UK and again, starting to route round for other jobs. Part of the problem I had was that I was fairly inexperienced as a pilot, even at that stage, but I was fairly advanced in years. So it wasn't a good, a great combination. Um, so, uh, but in fact, it sort of played into my hands for the next job because I was just mulling over uh, what I could do. When again, out of the blue, um, I had a phone call from a certain lady called Andrea Lowndes. And um, I she, think you've commented as well, Tracy, as well. Oh, she, oh right. So whatever I'm going to say now, Andrea, it's all true, okay? Um, but she'd just been doing a freelance trip because uh, after Chauffeur uh, went bust, of course, Andrea and the other cabin crew, they were then freelancing for other companies. And she'd just done a freelance trip for um, uh, a company called Sauvin Aviation that operated a Falcon 50 uh, based at Gloucester Airport. And it was a private operation owned by a private businessman, uh, but they did charter work as well. So, um, uh, so it was a good mix of uh, private and charter flying. Uh, but she rang me up and said, on this trip, the pilots were mentioning that they were looking for another pilot, uh, but they're not advertising in the press or anything. So she said, get your CV into this company. And she gave me all the details. So I uh, got my CV in and I went to have an interview with the chief pilot. And again, it's just the luck, you know, I know they say you make your own luck, but this just dropped in my lap. Now, he'd already interviewed several pilots, all of whom were young and really keen and you know absolutely keen as mustard wanted to really get on in life uh, the chief pilot was quite young in years himself he was still in his 30s so he's quite young to be a chief pilot um, i came along and he interviewed me now i was an older chap certainly 10 years older than him uh, not that experienced but enough experience you know to do the job um, but I wasn't, all I wanted to do was fly airplanes. I didn't want to climb the slippery pole of management. You know, I wasn't bothered about all that management stuff, which is exactly what he was looking for. Because he did say to me afterwards that the other guys that he'd interviewed, he felt slightly intimidated and slightly um, threatened by them. Whereas, you know, you can look at me, look at me, Harvey. Am I a threat to anybody? Uh, so um, it, was, it turned out that, you know, I was just what he was looking for. And there was another funny uh, stroke of luck with that, that um, years before, when I worked in exec uh, at Heathrow, it was, you can imagine, it was a manically busy office. You know, we, we never had time for meal breaks, hardly had time for a cup of tea during the day sometimes. But there was a schoolboy who was a mad keen aircraft spotter. And he would ring up the office and say, oh, you know, he's listening to the radio. What's that Learjet that's coming in? And want to chat about the airplanes we were handling. Now, some of the people in the office, they were a bit, I just got fed up with him and just some hang up on him or just be quite rude. And I always figured, well, he's always polite, you know, and if I had a couple of minutes, I wasn't too busy. I, I'd give him the time of day and chat to him. He was, it was quite a pleasant chat to chat to. Yeah. Or if I was busy, I'd say to him, look, well, give me a ring back at six-ish or something when it's quieter. And uh, so, we, you know, got on quite well with him. Uh, and then many years later, when I went for the interview for the Falcon, um, it was privately owned and based at Gloucester, but uh, for the charter side of it and the operations side, it was managed by a company based at Farnborough called Executive Jet Charter. So they took care of, uh, you know, the pilot training, um, all the handling requirements, all the flight planning side of things. Um, and um, uh, it just so happened that the managing director of that company, Executive Jet Charter, was that schoolboy. So 
you know, it's you, you never know what you give out in life, but you know, think what you give out, I, I really believe comes back. Yeah. Uh, and that was a, a quite a nice little example of, uh, of that, you know. Um, so yes, I fell into that job uh, by this happy accident. And thanks to Andrea, of course, who I think I should sign up as my agent, really. She was also responsible for me getting into airability. <laughs> but oh, uh, that might be a good chat, Andrew. Need some time. <laughs> yeah. But I'm so glad we're to talking about the Falcon 50. I think we've got some pictures and Chad can fix them out. But to me, oh. I'm thinking that your career really. Uh, came into fruition on these. Uh, beautiful chat, I think. What was it like to fly? It was fantastic. It's, it's funny, actually, when Showfair went bust, and I then thought, oh, you know, I'm not going to fly an HS125 again. Um, I felt really quite sad about that. But and in fact, that picture up there, that's not the Falcon 50, because within a, a year or so, um, the boss went out and bought a brand new uh, Falcon 900, uh, which he um, based again at Gloucester. And um, that was a, a dream of an aeroplane to fly. Absolutely fantastic. Um, I, I can't believe it, you know how lucky I was to, to fly it. One of the really nice things about it is that it's got a limited range. It, it'll fly transatlantic, okay. So you could go, say, from Birmingham to New York, or you could go direct to Dubai or direct to Delhi or something like that. Uh, but it wouldn't fly for too long. Some of the modern aeroplanes now, like the Global Express or the Gulfstream yeah. 6, you know, they'll fly for 14 hours. And I think, well, there's no way I want to fly an aeroplane for that long. So uh, this aircraft, and it, it was not just a good range aeroplane for transatlantic, uh, but it was really good on short range as well. Uh, it had such an excess of power uh, and fantastic brakes. You could land it on short runways. Um, I landed that aeroplane at Blackbush once, actually. Uh, when we couldn't get a slot into Farnborough. And um, th that brought the spotters out. It was really good. Uh, I mean, it, it does look stunning. And um, so I, I said of it that the bulk of your career was at uh, Talk us through this briefly. And we got a few pictures coming up. I think there's a lady let out the window of a building. And I know there's a story behind it. Um, well, yes, that was, that was actually the best country that I ever went to, I think. It was, uh, it was the country of Bhutan up in the Himalayas. And... Um, it's uh, it's the country that's it's a monarchy, but um, uh, the, the king uh, declared that they don't consider the most important thing to be a gross national product. Uh, he put great importance on gross national happiness, and it's the most giving and happy society that I've ever experienced. And then no, there's nobody in the country who's particularly rich, and there's nobody in the country who's poor. They everybody genuinely really does look out for everybody else and um and share what they have and that's it that's the main airport terminal building and um it's uh, it was it was a, an absolute joy to fly there the approach was uh, the most demanding approach i've ever been involved in uh, we had to go up to british aerospace in manchester and spend a day flying the 
uh, simulator because they had the approach for this airfield uh, built into the simulator and we had to practice because the, the difficulty with the approach was that you you um, start off by getting the weather brief um, and up the end of the valley there's uh, a mountain top uh, that's called confluence and uh, we were flying up there from delhi and so we were at delhi in the ops office rang the tower at bhutan at paro and said what's the weather and then the, the air traffic control man looks up the valley and he can see the mountain top at uh, uh, confluence and his weather report is confluence is clear and if you hear that from him then you're good to go and fly up there and fly the approach so off we went and you come over the airfield at about uh, i think the minimum safe altitude is twenty-three thousand feet and you come overhead the airfield and it's down in the bottom of, out of a valley oh this is the approach yeah the, our um, flight attendant trish um, she uh, she filmed it over my shoulder. So we're following a river valley here. And um, the airfield elevation is nearly 8,000 feet above sea level. Uh, and there is no room to build an airport in Bhutan where you can have an un, uh, unobstructed approach. Uh, you have to fly over various bluffs to get in there. So you descend over the airfield and fly up to the valley past the end of the airfield, descend again, come back over the airfield, descending again, and eventually you get to this point where we're about a thousand feet above the river and following the uh, the river valley down. And you'll notice we're quite low on the approach already here, but we still yet can't see the airfield. And we have to fly over a bluff, and on the top of the bluff, you can actually see it just where the arrow's pointing there, there's a, a thing called uh, a house, and it's known universally as Mr. Smith's house. And you have to fly over Mr. Smith's house at 200 feet. And once you've cleared his house, you then got to do a bit of a sort of a dirty dive down to the runway. Um, so it's not a stable approach by any means. Uh, and it's a very, very exciting approach to fly. So now you're just getting the, the view of the runway here we come up over Mr. Smith's house, and it was uh, it was a real privilege to uh, to be able to fly in there. It, it looks like a great event. Did you look forward to the challenge? Oh yes, I mean uh, to be able to get to do. You want to cut the film off now because it all goes to uh, to a bit of a mess at this point. <laughs> She dropped the camera just after we touched down. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, various places we flew to. We used to fly to Sion uh, in Switzerland, and that was a, an interesting approach to fly. Uh, again, you know, down in the bottom of a valley with mountains all around. Um, it certainly, you know, keeps you sharp and uh, keeps you uh, awake. Uh, but uh, and in fact, we used to go up to northern Denmark a lot. The boss um, used to go to a, a little town called Skagen. And we spent quite a bit of time up there privately with the boss. And we used to land on a, uh, an airstrip there called Sindal. Uh, again, which is only about three and a half thousand feet runway. Uh, so it, it concentrates the mind, you know, when you've got short runways or obstructed approaches. Um, so I feel very lucky to have been able to, to you know, to fly some of these things. It, the, the scenery of especially that just it, mm. it, did you ever get to 
Well, uh, yeah, occasionally. I mean, um, we used to do some of the big pop groups doing uh, um, sort of when they're on tour. Um, so people like Elton John, we'd fly him around uh, around when he was on a European tour. Um, and he actually uh, would always want to come back to the UK straight after the concert if he could. So very often we'd be, you know, somewhere in Europe. He'd come off stage, come straight to the airfield, onto the aircraft, and we'd fly him. The only air, airfield that was open in the London area at that time of night was Heathrow. So we'd fly into Heathrow at around midnight or so. He'd go off home, and then the next day we'd reposition out to Farnborough to do the next bit of the trip. So uh, that was quite complicated. And, uh, yeah, we flew Paul McCartney quite a lot as well with his band. So that was a very cost-effective way of getting the band around. Um, and if we were on the ground and staying overnight, uh, then the crew were generally invited to go to the concert, yeah, as, as the guests of the band. So that was, I mean, it was just amazing. You know, we always had fantastic seats. But, I, I mean, the, the last trip we did with Paul McCartney, we, um, we landed uh, back in the UK from somewhere, and they had a few days off then. And Paul McCartney was great with the crew. You know, we always got on very, very well with them. And uh, he was always very nice to me. Uh, um, he stopped back. You know, normally he'd get off the airplane into his car and off he'd go home or wherever. Uh, but he actually hung back one evening and... Uh, collared me in the cabin and he'd said you know i'd just like to say thank you for looking after us so well on this tour he said you know the crew are really taking good care of us um and he said we really do appreciate it and i said well you know we get a real buzz out of it as well you know you um uh take take care of us really um so uh, and i and i mentioned i said my wife is a massive beatles fan right back from the 60s uh, so with that, he said, oh, well, look, we're playing the O2 on Monday. He said, why don't you bring your wife as my guest? So what do you say? I mean, that was just absolutely amazing because when I got home, my wife was very, very thrilled, of course. So yeah. sure enough. I mean, bearing in mind that, you know, you, you know the old newsreel films when you see the, uh, the girls, screaming girls on the airport roof screaming at the Beatles when they're getting off their aeroplane? Well, my wife was one of those girls up there. She really was a... Uh, you know, a real Beatles fan, as our son Paul would tell you as well, although she says there's no connection with that. But um, anyway, uh, off we went to uh, the O2, went to this VIP desk. Sure enough, nice little envelope, VIP passes in there, went and found our seats, had a fantastic concert. It was just incredible. And then we drove home afterwards. And the next morning, I was just downstairs making the breakfast, and I was clearing out my jacket pockets, and I found this envelope uh, where the tickets had been. And then I found this little slip of paper inside the envelope, giving us directions to the backstage party. So uh, I, I, I thought, should I tell her? Uh, and in the end, I thought, well, I, I'm going to have to. You know, if if uh, if I don't, it's going to slip out at some stage or other. So she'd missed her chance to actually go and uh, go to the party and meet him. But uh, uh, that was completely down to me. I mean, I... <laughs> anyway, that's life. She still enjoyed the concert anyway. She then, yeah. I bet you still were in her good books for quite a while after. I'm going to replace one of my questions now with a question from Rachel Robson, because I think she, she's, yeah, she's phrased it a bit better than I have. And that is, right. 
is your best career moment. And I like this. He did also clarify that this can be bad or good because of bad things can also add oh, yeah. to the best moments. Well, I've, I've got. To, I have to say, I suppose that the most memorable moment of my entire life, I suppose, was um, flying the Queen, and um, it was it, it was almost like a, a really surreal experience. Um, we were tasked to fly Her Majesty from Northolt up to Aberdeen and then she was going on, it was in July, about this time of year, and um, she was going on holiday to uh, Balmoral. And uh, I was uh, quite, I, I was, what should we say, the junior member of the team. I was sort of briefed, you know, by the equerries to sort of, you stay in the cockpit, you know, look out of the window, don't talk to anybody and uh, just keep out of the way. Uh, so that's fine, you know, no problem at all. And uh, so uh, the Queen came on board and uh, uneventful flight. One of the funny things was, because, you know, you get a special royal call sign. Uh, the, 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 the Queen's call sign is Kitty Hawk. So uh, we were airborne and on our way up, flying up. to, And it was a bit of a zigzag route up the country, sort of Birmingham, then Manchester and then um, Edinburgh. And... Um, so I thought, well, I'll ask air traffic and see, you know, you always ask for shortcuts with air traffic. So I said to this air traffic controller, you know, I was Kitty Hawk, um, any chance we could go direct to Edinburgh? And this chap came straight back. He said, oh, my dear chap, he said, you can go wherever you like, he said. <laughs> so sure enough, straight line to Edinburgh uh, and off we went. That was quite a funny moment. But uh, when we landed, of course, there's a big flurry, you know, everybody's rushing around to try to get the bags sorted out and get the limousines lined up. And so um, and the, the captain that I was flying with, he jumped out of his seat to go down to stand with the equerries and that sort of thing. So the only people left in the airplane were myself and the Queen. And um, so I was busy in the cockpit. I wasn't really aware of what was going on. But then I looked around and she was standing right by me. Uh, waiting in the doorway because her limousine hadn't quite pulled round yet, so she didn't go down the stairs. And she was just beaming at me, you know, smiling. And she said, uh, oh, she said, I really do love this time of year. She said, I'm going on my summer holiday now. So I felt a little bit like a rabbit in the headlights, but I thought, well, you know, she's spoken to me. So I said, well, I hope you have a really wonderful holiday, Your Majesty. And she absolutely, her face lit up. And she beamed as though I'd done something really nice for her, you know. And she said, oh, thank you so much, she said. And with that, she, off she swept and went on a holiday. And I was sitting there thinking, did that really just happen? And uh, so it, that was I probably, I suppose, the absolute high spot, you know, of, uh, of my flying career. It doesn't get any better than that. It, it definitely doesn't. And I, I guess that answers the question, what is your proudest moment? Because what a privilege. Well, uh, I've, got to, I've, got to, I've got to pay tribute to my wife here as well, because uh, she was always into floristry and um, uh, all sorts of you know garden designing and all sorts of stuff like that. And the night before the trip, uh, Denise, our, our hostess, she rang me up and said, would Jane do a flower arrangement? Uh, for the cabin of the aeroplane. And, of course, um, poor old Jane, she flew into an absolute panic. You know, we went rushing off down to the florists and um, I got an old sort of round basket that was hanging up in the shed and uh, we made an oasis. And she did this beautiful display, uh, which we then put into the cabin on the aeroplane. And as the Queen was getting up to leave, uh, she said to Denise, 
oh, she said, I'll take this if that's all right. This will look beautiful in Balmoral. And she took Jane's uh, floral display off to Balmoral for her, with her. So I oh, thought a real feather in the cap for my wife as well. Yeah, yeah. That, that is awesome. I, I mean, what a great experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think the thing that really stands out is you treat everyone the same with, with kindness regardless of who they are. Yeah. I, I think that's where the, that great reaction came from because no matter who you are, you need a bit of kindness. Um, so, so what, what brought your executive jet flying uh, to an end? Yeah, that was quite sad, actually, that uh, only that uh, my boss, uh, a chap called Philip Sorensen, and he was a fantastic guy to work for, a really, really lovely man. Um, and uh, he, he died, and he was quite young. I mean, he was only 70, about 71 when he died, I think. Uh, and so... Uh, his family then inherit, inherited all his assets uh, and the family never really used his private jet. Um, I mean, I remember in the eulogy at his funeral, his son uh, referred to the airplane as his dad's, you know, expensive toy. And I think that's kind of how they viewed it. So we had a feeling that our days were a little bit numbered, but we carried on operating uh, through executive jet charter. So we still did charter work and, and in fact, we made enough money uh, with chartering to cover the costs of the airplane. So it was, um, you know, we, we weren't a drain on the resources. The only thing we couldn't cover the cost of was the uh, depreci depreciation of the airplane itself. Uh, but certainly operating costs, we, we made a profit. Um, so we were kind of hoping that we'd be left alone and just carry on chartering. And we, you know, we did high profile stuff like the Royal Family, uh, like all the big pop groups, some very uh, rich business people used us. And we had a very good reputation for customer service. So people that flew with us once, they wanted us, you know, back again. I mean, in fact, we, we did a lot of flying for Tony Blair, you know, in this uh, Middle Eastern envoy um, sort of role that he had. And we did a, a, a lot of flying for him. And he would ring up uh, and it's basically we would be the first choice you know if we weren't available then they'd go on to other operators to um to to, to fulfill the the role but um so but it wasn't to be we carried on for two years after the boss had died uh, but then the family put the aircraft up for sale um yeah. and there again i was so i was back out of a job and it was just at the same moment when the market was very difficult for pilots because there was a very large company called NetJets um, and that they at the very same moment that we were selling our airplane um, they made 160 of their pilots redundant so the market was absolutely flooded with uh, uh, with executive jet pilots um, so it was quite difficult especially by then I was getting on a bit I was actually getting close to the 65 year because at 65, you can't fly public transport any longer. So, uh, and I was getting a bit close to that. So, you know, nobody was going to employ me uh, being so close to that age for public transport work. But anyway, I uh, I did a little bit of freelance work. Uh, yeah. But uh, that was at the point when I fell into uh, airability. It is. I was about to say it. It's all bad because I think 2012 you uh, came for a cup of tea and yep. uh, you, 
Yeah, the next thing, whatever you've been up to with us for so long. Well, that started out, again, another phone call from that uh, lovely lady, Andrea Lowndes, who was working with their ability on a voluntary basis. And she said, just pop in, have a cup of tea, 10 minutes. And that was, as you say, in 2012. And uh, I popped in for a cup of tea and I haven't left. Uh, but um, Mike Miller-Smith uh, made some sort of noises about the possibility of re me renewing my instructor's rating, which I hadn't used in oh, 20 years. Um, but he then, again, going back to my good old friend, Tim Orchard, uh, it was Mike Miller-Smith that brought Tim Orchard in. Um, and I got, a, again, a phone call out of the blue. And Tim said to me, right, get yourself down to Blackbush tomorrow morning. Um, as early as you like, he said, we're going to go flying uh, and then I'm going to sign up your instructor's rating. Um, and then we did some ground school. We did a bit of studying. And sure enough, within a week, you know, I'd uh, done my testing and there I had my instructor's rating back. And my feet didn't touch the floor. And I have to say, instructing with their ability has been another of the joys of my life. It's, um, it's hard to express uh, well, you know, I mean, I've flown with you, Harvey, haven't I? Uh, to sit there and watch somebody develop and to, and especially when somebody gets in an aeroplane and they say, I can't do this. And, uh, you know, after a little bit of encouragement and, you know, trying, they find, you know, you find you can do it. Uh, and it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's just brilliant. It is, and I think for, for my point of view, I started flying with you for a little while, really, and it was at a time where my future PPL was pretty um, uncertain, and I think I just fed off your enthusiasm for <laughs> aviation. It, it's brilliant. Oh, and, uh, I think you only told me off once, which was pretty good going as well. So um, you did, uh, but we, <laughs> we we got some. It was good because I've never forgotten what you said at that moment. Um, but we got some pictures coming up of the Cherokee set. Yeah. Uh, so. T tell us about this. There's one with the door off as well. Oh, there was, yeah. Well, um, of course, you know, the National Air Traffic Service, they um, uh, they actually sponsored and bought an aeroplane for us, a Technam uh, single-engined aircraft. You had a picture of it up there a little bit earlier. Uh, the door off incident was when uh, we flew down to um, the Aero Expo down at uh, Friedrichshafen, and we took delivery of the, um, of the Technam. And so we flew back in formation. Uh, all the way from Friedrichshafen back to Blackbush. But we stopped off in Latuke to get some fuel and um, and have a you know a bit of a pee and that sort of thing and refuel. Um, and th they decided, Guy Westgate, who's very well known to airability, uh, decided that he wanted to get some unobstructed air-to-air -air shots. So we took the door off the Cherokee 6 uh, and, and very, very strongly strapped Guy in the doorway. And... Um, took off and we flew across the channel and we guy took so many pictures and did some movie and that sort of thing. There he is in the doorway there. Yeah. And I was flying the Cherokee six and James Brown, our old, uh, one of our old instructors, he was flying in the right hand seat with me. So he was doing the radio. And as we taxied out at Le Bourget, uh, Le Touquet, uh, 
James was talking to him and got to the end of the runway and said, okay, we're, you know, we're ready for departure. And the controller came straight back on. And he said, oh, Hotel Kilo, Fox Kilo, he says, your door. He said, he's, he's open. I mean, and James just very quiet. He just said, yeah, that's fine. Okay, thanks. So ready for departure. No, no, you don't understand. Your door, your door is not there. <clears throat> oh, you know, he said, okay, thanks a lot. You know, ready for departure. And in the end, after three attempts, this controller, he said, okay, clear takeoff. And off we went, you know, but uh, it was fine. It was great. It was a great trip. And we got some really good photographs out of it. Um, but the other picture you showed there just now, that was uh, a trip we did. There's the Technam. And that was at a little airfield called Gruyere, um, just off the end of Lake Geneva in Switzerland. And we did a, there's a, an organization called Handy Flight uh, based in Switzerland. And they invited us to go there for a week's flying. And it was just really again another joy uh, we were flying around the alps we did a little trip into sion and uh, we did various uh, cross-country flights we went up to the top of a flew with um, one chap up to the top of um, mont blanc uh, just to have a look uh, it was you know i mean the opportunities that we've had uh, to do some really good stuff it's 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 great yeah, I, I think ever since being there, the thing everybody has taught me is anything impossible. Yeah. Uh, it really oh, is. Oh, Brian Catchpole landing at Sion. Yeah. And because this is where we used to go in the Falcon 900 as well. So uh, it was just uh, like, you know, going back to the old uh, old haunts for me. You yeah. did a good job, Brian. That was, uh, it, uh, that was quite a demanding approach for him to fly. And it worked out really well. It, it, it's a lovely place. I, I'm moving on a little bit. You've all, you have also been involved with Project Propeller. Um, tell us a bit about them and what, why you got involved. Yes. Um, I Well, it's funny. I read about them some years ago. Um, and it's an organization that uh, they, they go out to people around the country, to pilots around the country, who are prepared to provide an airplane and their time. And we get as many uh, World War II veterans uh, into private aircraft and fly into a designated airport somewhere in the middle of the country where they have a day having a big reunion and a big party. And then in the afternoon, we fly them all home again. And I, I had thought some years ago, oh, yeah, I'd really like to get involved with that. So, um, and then, of course, it just got put on one side until I got a phone call from a chap who was doing it from Blackbush, and his wife had been taken into hospital within a, within a few days of, of uh, Project Propeller. So he asked me if I'd uh, uh, take it over. And I met up with three of these veterans uh, on that day and got on really well with them. And I ended up not just doing the annual trip to, um, uh, to for the for the party and the reunions, but I would take them on trips, you know, other than that as well. Um, I took three chaps up to East Kirby, where they're restoring uh, one of the Lancasters, uh, and got and they had a tour around the aircraft and saw it taxiing around the airfield. Uh, and then one of the old chaps was said to me one day, um, he he really would like to go up and visit the. Uh, Bomber Command Memorial at Lincoln. And when I looked, the nearest airfield to get there was Waddington. Uh, so I contacted the uh, ops department there who told me to go away and not bother them. Of course, you can't land a private airplane at Waddington. So through the Aircrew Association, 
um, and the Air Force, uh, it went up as high as uh, High Wycombe, uh, where the group captain at High Wycombe, who was involved in the Aircrew Association, rang the station commander at Waddington and said, uh, look, you know, let these chaps come. You know, they've paid their dues. So sure enough, we took the Cherokee Six and good old Claire Tonkinson, she came with me. And between the two of us, uh, we flew up to Waddington and we landed there. And to be fair to the RAF, they treated us like absolute royalty. And uh, they were all ex-bomber crew from the Second World War. Uh, one of them had been a prisoner of war and they were uh, taken to the... Um, to the memorial, given lunch, and had an absolutely glorious day. So, to me, it's it's again a real privilege to to work with these chaps. Um, and um, I, you know, I, it's a shame in lockdown that it's curtailed a lot of the uh, the activities now. But uh, I'm sure we'll pick it up again because they're dwindling a dwindling population now. We've lost, I think, three of them in the last year. So. Uh, uh, you know, want to do as much as we can with those remaining as while we can, really. Yeah, it, it is really a brilliant thing to do, and uh, we we can't, and I don't think we will ever forget the sacrifices that they they made for us. Yeah, um, we're, we're flying, which back back in those days were fairly primitive without being. Um, Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was just an extra thing and the incredible yeah. bravery. So we won't ever forget that. No, um, the other thing that strikes me about them, though, is that, you know, they're in the 90s now. Um, and it's this, they still, to a man or, and woman, they have this zest for life, you know. And uh, it's a bit like, uh, you know, old Tom Moore, who's getting his knighthood tomorrow. You know, the, the men of that spirit, they, uh, they're, so they're so to be respected and, yeah. and and you know i feel i feel it's a privilege to uh you know to be in their company De definitely definitely mm. and we we are running short on time but the last thing i want to ask you about is de definitely there's that new venture you have away from aviation and that's as a tv extra uh, um, how's how's that going uh well actually it's 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 come to a dead stop for the moment of course um, you know a lot of the filming has been uh, uh, stopped and curtailed since uh, lockdown and that's worldwide of course so uh, there's not a lot in the offing at the moment but uh, no, I've I've had a I've had several, uh, and it's been good fun. I did get a little part in uh, uh, in a Netflix series called The Crown. Uh, oddly enough, playing the part of a pilot. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, it was really good fun. I just thought one day I'd heard of somebody I knew that did a bit of film extra work, and I just thought sounds a fun thing to do. And I just googled it. How do you become a, an extra? Signed up with various agencies, and you know I get uh, I get the occasional call. So I've done, uh, that was the, the, the main one, uh, was the, I was flying um, a Piper Chieftain into the island of Mustique uh, when flying Princess Margaret in there. So, you know, I'm only very briefly on the screen, but it was a day's filming and it was, it was good. I got to meet Helena Bonham Carter, who was very nice. Uh, so, yeah, it was good fun. And I made us another film. I was, I say, I made another film. <laughs> uh, no, I, I spent a, I spent a weekend filming up in London, uh, and it was actually a French film 
uh, about uh, when Charles de Gaulle, at the beginning of the Second World War, when he escaped from France and came over to uh, seek the support of Churchill uh, for the Free French Army. Uh, so I played uh, a man in the suit, man in suit in the street. But I did get to hold open the door of Broadcasting House for Charles de Gaulle to, to walk through. So, well, yeah. That's a claim to fame, that normally. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, a, a quick look at the comments before we go, I think. Oh, I dread to think, yeah. Be careful, I will say the first name. So it's um, Mr. Clucking Chickens. Uh, but he said, uh, My dad, he's a junkler. I uh, flew a project propeller uh, to York, uh, right. which is incredible. Um, we've also a bit higher up got a question to see if you still know any uh, aircraft parts of time. Um, but just general love for you, Doug. I think you've done a good job in inspiring the viewers today. Um, and a lot of hellos and a lot of um, people listening keenly. Uh, oh, so, uh, to, to the viewers, uh, this will still be on Everability's YouTube channel um, forever now. Um, so be sure to uh, carry on sharing it and pointing people to this bit of inspiration. Uh, on on this um, now now a bit of a sunny Thursday afternoon. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Nick, um, yeah. allowing me to talk to you. It's it's just every time we talk, I learn something different about <laughs> you, and uh, we we really do appreciate your efforts uh, with their ability mm. and. Uh, what an amazing career you've had and you, you have definitely earned it as well um so thank you to everyone involved uh nick and also chad uh working behind the scenes and also the viewers for watching thank you very much and see you soon right thanks very much <laughs>